0: Summer Camp is a magic place where kids discover who they are because they have the freedom to explore on their own. Y Camp at Horse Thief Reservoir is a sleepaway camp in the heart of Idaho's wilderness. Each summer, campers make friends, build new skills, and learn to love the outdoors through activities like canoeing, archery, zip lining, rock climbing, campfires, and more. Registration for Y Camp at Horse Thief Reservoir is open. Financial assistance is available. Learn more at YCampIdaho.org. Welcome to the Kotki Ride Home for Friday, June 25th, 2021. I'm Jackson Bird. Researchers have found evidence of a coronavirus epidemic from 20,000 years ago, a new blood test that can detect 50 different types of cancer, and what the lowercase i in Apple products stands for and why they stopped using it. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. We know that coronaviruses, like COVID-19, the common cold, and more, have been responsible for their fair share of epidemics. The current one, of course, as well as MERS beginning in 2012, and SARS beginning in 2002. But the history of coronavirus epidemics goes back a lot further. Like a lot further. According to a new analysis published yesterday in the journal Current Biology, major coronavirus outbreaks were apparently happening 20,000 years ago. This ancient form of a coronavirus was devastating enough in its impact in East Asia to leave an evolutionary imprint on the DNA of people today, according to the New York Times. Prior to this study, tracking the history of coronaviruses has mostly involved looking at the genes of the pathogens. Researchers have been able to track a mild coronavirus, a type that would only cause a minor cold, back 820 years, but before that, not much. Now, this new study has looked at the effects of the viruses on the DNA of humans, as opposed to the viruses, and found a lot more. But first, a little context on how viruses change over time. Quoting Cosmos, Viruses are very simple creatures, with the sole objective to make more copies of themselves, says Yassin Suleimi of the University of Adelaide, a co-author of the study. Their simple biological structure renders them incapable of reproducing by themselves, so they must invade the cells of other organisms and hijack their molecular machinery to exist. To do this, a virus will hijack the function of proteins made by the host cell that ordinarily help the cell make new DNA, which allows the viruses to replicate themselves. These hijacked proteins are called viral interaction proteins, or VIPs, end quote. And from the New York Times, quote, In recent years, lead author Dr. Enard and his colleagues have searched the human genome for these patterns of genetic variation in order to reconstruct the history of an array of viruses. When the pandemic struck, he wondered whether ancient coronaviruses had left a distinctive mark of their own. He and his colleagues compared the DNA of thousands of people across 26 different populations around the world, looking at a combination of genes known to be crucial for coronaviruses, but not other kinds of pathogens. In East Asian populations, the scientists found that 42 of these genes had a dominant version. That was a strong signal that people in East Asia had adapted to an ancient coronavirus. The scientists then tried to estimate how long ago East Asians had adapted to a coronavirus. They took advantage of the fact that once a dominant version of a gene starts being passed down through the generations, it can gain harmless random mutations. As more time passes, more of those mutations accumulate. Dr. Enard and his colleagues found that the 42 genes all had about the same number of mutations. That meant they had all rapidly evolved at about the same time. End quote. The researchers estimate that all of the 42 genes evolved around 20 to 25,000 years ago, over the course of a few centuries. And estimating exactly when the epidemic that precipitated these changes occurred will be a lot more difficult. But that's not exactly the aim here. The bigger takeaway is understanding how these mutations affect us and figuring out if we can leverage this information to develop drugs and fight future outbreaks. Quoting co-authors Sulimi and Dr. Ray Tobler in Science Alert, Further testing revealed that the 42 VIPs are primarily expressed in the lungs, which is the tissue most affected by COVID-19 symptoms. We also confirmed these VIPs interact directly with the SARS-CoV-2 virus responsible for the current pandemic. Other independent studies have also shown that mutations in VIP genes may mediate SARS-CoV-2 susceptibility and the severity of COVID-19 symptoms. In addition, several VIP genes are either currently being used as drug targets for COVID-19 treatments or are part of clinical trials for this purpose. Several of the adaptive VIPs identified in our study are also drug targets for other types of viruses, such as Zika virus and hepatitis C. Several of these drugs have been successfully repurposed and suggest that others could potentially be repurposed for COVID-19 treatment end quote. And while the authors are optimistic about the potential for more effective treatment, lead author David Ennard also warned that the finding from 20,000 or so years ago, showing that the coronavirus then was around for many, many years, quote, should make us worry. What is going on right now might be going on for generations and generations, end quote. So even more reason to continue this research because while it could indicate the long-lasting impact of certain viruses, it will also help us develop even more effective treatment. As Tobler and Salimi concluded in Science Alert, By uncovering the genes previously impacted by historical viral outbreaks, our study points to the promise of evolutionary genetic analyses as a new tool in fighting the outbreaks of the future. End quote. A new blood test that can identify 50 types of cancer, often before symptoms are noticed, has officially been approved for screening trials. The results of its initial trials, performed on patients who already had cancer diagnoses, was published today in the journal Annals of Oncology. The screening trial is being rolled out for patients aged 50 and older who are at higher risk for cancer. It will be available in the U.S. by prescription and is being piloted by England's National Health Service this fall. Quoting Eureka Alert, The test involves taking a sample of blood from each patient and analyzing it for DNA, known as cell-free DNA or CFDNA, which tumors and other cells shed into the blood. Genomic sequencing is used to detect chemical changes to the DNA called methylation that control gene expression, and a classifier developed with machine learning uses these results to detect abnormal methylation patterns that suggest cancer is present. In addition, the machine learning classifier can predict where in the body the cancer is located. Results are available within 10 business days from the time the sample reaches the lab. End quote. And from The Guardian, the test has an impressively high level of accuracy. Scientists analyzed the performance of the test in 2,823 people with the disease and 1,254 people without. It correctly identified when cancer was present in 51.5% of cases across all stages of the disease and wrongly detected cancer in only 0.5% of cases. In solid tumors that do not have any screening options, such as esophageal, liver, and pancreatic cancers, the ability to generate a positive test result was twice as high as that for solid tumors that do have screening options, such as breast, bowel, cervical, and prostate cancers. Meanwhile, the overall ability to generate a positive test result in cancers of the blood, such as lymphoma and myeloma, was 55.1%. The test correctly also identified the tissue in which the cancer was located in the body in 88.7% of cases. End quote. This is huge, and while for many types of cancers it will simply complement other screening tests, for those ones listed that don't have other options, this early detection could truly save a lot of lives. Dr. Marco Gerlinger from the Institute of Cancer Research in London said, quote, false positives are low, which is important as this will avoid misdiagnoses. For some of the most common tumor types, such as bowel or lung cancer, the test even picked up cancers that were very small at a stage where many of them could potentially be cured. It already allows a glance at early cancer detection in the future, which will almost certainly be built around liquid biopsy tests, which detect cancer DNA in the bloodstream. End quote. An Annals of Oncology editor-in-chief, Fabrice Andre, remarked on the significance of this achievement. Quote, early detection of cancer is the next frontier in cancer research, as it could save millions of lives worldwide. Developing technologies that address this issue is the first step. Next steps will include the development of new therapeutic interventions. In parallel, major efforts related to population awareness must continue or all these efforts will not lead to transformation of outcomes." Have you ever wondered why so many Apple products have a lowercase i in front of their name? If you've read Tech Meme Ride Home host Brian McCullough's book How the Internet Happened, you may already know. But there's also the question of why they stopped using the i. Nowadays, we have the Apple Watch and Apple TV, not iWatch or iTV. Greg Wyatt Jr. over at the Apple Explained YouTube channel posted a pair of videos over the past month answering each of those questions. And by the way, if you're not already a subscriber, I highly recommend his channel. He tackles so many questions like why the iPhone's snooze button is 9 minutes and why their products come with stickers, all in a super succinct and straightforward format. A lot of the videos are just under 3 minutes long, so it's easy to get sucked in and watch a ton of them in a row. But right now, let's talk about that eye. As both Wyatt at Apple Explained and Brian in his book point out, when the iMac debuted in 1998, Apple was specifically positioning it to be a computer for the internet era, one that would connect faster and be more user-friendly. So that little i stood for internet, but it also stood for individual. Instruct, inform, inspire, and probably whatever other I words you could think of. That was all the pitch of the marketing team, who was trying to sell Steve Jobs on the iMac name instead of his idea, MacMan. Yes, he wanted to call the new computer MacMan. Just imagine if that naming scheme had kept up. Like, Would we have gotten Podmans and Padmans and Phonemans? Fortunately, despite rejecting iMac twice, Jobs came around to the idea after seeing it printed on a prototype. And since the iMac became their most successful product to date and completely changed the game for them, they stuck to that branding, with their suite of software, iDVD, iPhoto, iMovie, etc., and then the iBook in 1999, the iPod in 2001, and the iPhone in 2007. But now, the eye is gone from new products. We have Apple Watches and Apple Earbuds instead of iWatches and iBuds. So what happened? Probably a number of things, but the biggest one that Wyatt points to? Trademark issues. When Apple was developing the Apple Watch, they learned that the iWatch trademark was already claimed by a company called OMG Electronics in the U.S., plus a software company in Ireland whose trademark applied to the entire European Union, and yet another company in China. Now, trademark disputes weren't exactly new to Apple— In the early 1980s, Apple had to beg audio company Macintosh Labs to use the name Macintosh for their fourth-generation computer. Jeff Raskin, who was leading the Macintosh team, had already tried to avoid this by spelling the computer M-A-C, while the company spelt it M-C, like the actual Apple is spelt. But even with the spelling difference, Macintosh Labs claimed trademark infringement, and it would take several years, personal letters from Steve Jobs to the president of Macintosh Labs, and eventually $100,000 for Apple to succeed successfully by the trademark but that would not be the end of their trademark battles fast forward to the early 2000s cisco had already trademarked the name iphone and apple ended up paying them ahead of their iphone's release to be able to use the name iPad was also trademarked by a company in China, and to use the name iPad in that region, Apple had to pay that company $60 million. And according to Wyatt, it became clear that companies were starting to intentionally trademark iWords that might be a future Apple release so that they could make millions off of Apple wanting it. What a headache. So in 2010, Apple tried to trademark the I prefix to avoid this issue. They lost the case though, the court said no company can own a whole letter, and that most adults with common sense wouldn't mistake any I-prefixed product as belonging to Apple just because of the I. Having lost that case, they turned to a trademark they already owned, Apple. Now any of their products prefixed with Apple would be safely under their own existing trademark. There is one Apple-named product that predates this attempt to trademark the i, though. Apple TV. It came out four years earlier, in 2006, and was called iTV internally, up until just a couple of weeks before its release. There's even a sneak peek of the product's release in which Steve Jobs calls it the iTV. You can see a photo of that in Wyatt's video, link in the show notes. But there is a British TV network with the same name, ITV, and unlike some of the smaller companies that Apple's gone to battle with for iNames or who use them for just one of their products, ITV is an entire major network, second only to the BBC in England. Apple was not going to win that case, so they backed down. They called it Apple TV, and Wyatt speculates that could have kicked off the naming strategy for Apple instead of i. And after they lost the attempt to trademark the letter I in 2010, the iPad became the last new product to use the I naming scheme. In recent years, the I has even been dropped from Apple's software. iBooks is just books, iPhoto is just photos, and iTunes was completely reworked, with the music portion just being music and the podcasts, Apple Podcasts. But will they scrub the I off existing hardware? Could our iPhones and iPads become the Apple Phone or Apple Pad? Well that second one I kinda hope not. Remember how much they got dragged when they announced the iPad's name when everyone had been thinking it would be called something like the iTablet? We've grown accustomed to the word iPad now, but when you make it Apple Pad, I'm sent right back to how silly iPad first sounded to me in 2010. Apple Phone though, I think that sounds pretty sleek. I'd be okay with that one. Well, Andrew Garfield is apparently just starring in every super niche interest of mine these days. After the trailer dropped for the pre-rent Jonathan Larson musical and my personal favorite Tick Tick Boom, in which Garfield plays Larson himself, it was just announced that he'll be starring in an FX miniseries adaptation of one of my favorite books, John Krakauer's 2003 nonfiction bestseller, Under the Banner of Heaven. The book is Krakauer's investigation into a double homicide within a small community of fundamentalist Mormons, as well as a historical look at the development of the very different and completely separate mainstream Church of Latter-day Saints. Krakauer kind of tracks how those fundamentalist sects split off from what became the mainstream church today, as well as following the details of and fallout from the murders. Here's the official synopsis of the upcoming miniseries, quote, A devout detective's faith is tested as he investigates a brutal murder that seems to be connected to an esteemed Utah family's spiral into LDS fundamentalism and their distrust in the government, end quote. quote. Daisy Edgar-Jones will also star. No release date or further casting has been announced yet. The rights for a film adaptation of the book were actually bought by Warner Brothers years ago, and back in 2011, Ron Howard was tapped to direct a feature. Collider reports that news of that adaptation was quiet over the past decade until now, when distribution and overall plans changed. I will also add, if this topic has intrigued you at all, in 2015, one of my personal favorite documentary filmmakers, Amy Berg, directed a doc called Prophets Pray, in which John Krakauer appears as a main subject sharing his ongoing investigation of fundamentalist Mormons, and that documentary was significant at the time because it was the first comprehensive look at the FLDS since their corrupt leader, Warren Jeffs, had been caught by the FBI and imprisoned in 2006. If you liked the documentary Going Clear, you'll definitely be into Prophets Prey. Same production value and striking cinematography, and a similar type of topic handled just as comprehensively. Prophets Prey is available to stream on Showtime if you're looking for something to watch this weekend, or you can wait for the Andrew Garfield miniseries to come out. Also, on a totally different topic, there is some huge breaking news coming out right now as I am recording this about a new skull that was discovered that they're calling Dragon Man and how it could be a new ancient species of human huge news. I'll put a link in the show notes if you want to read up on it this weekend. And maybe I'll do a deep dive on Monday once the dust has settled a bit. But that is it for this week. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and cocky.org. I am Jackson Bird and I will talk to you again on Monday. Have a great weekend.